All right, well, it is now turning 9.30, so we can get started. Good morning, and welcome to the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. I'm David Kaposha. As I was saying before, we've come to the end of Unit 8 in our Answers Bible Curriculum. Now, if you didn't know, our weekly chronological study through the Bible is actually based off of a Sunday School curriculum produced by Answers in Genesis. If you don't know Answers in Genesis, they're a Christian apologetics organization, and they produced a Sunday School curriculum, basically a, a survey study through the Bible, which they call the Answers Bible Curriculum, or ABC for short. Nice little acronym. We are using the second edition of this curriculum at our church, and it's divided into a number of units. The curriculum as a whole is designed to be completed in four years, with breaks taken during the summers. So with the end of Unit 8, we also come to the end of Year 2 of the curriculum. So actually, we're halfway through our study with this curriculum. So how about that? But what have we seen over the past nine lessons in this this unit, unit eight. Well, I'll just post the lessons that we've done. Much of what we've seen over the past nine lessons has been emblematic of that scripture that we focused on briefly in 1 Samuel 2, chapter 30. 1 Samuel 2, 30, God speaks to Eli and he says, Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And isn't that really what we've been seeing again and again as we move through the books of Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel? We saw how God raised up Gideon, who was no one, and yet God honored him because Gideon honored God. We saw how God raised up, cast down, and then raised up again Samson for the same reasons. We saw how God impoverished and then made full Naomi. We saw how God judged Eli, raised up Samuel. He chose and then rejected Saul. And then he raised up and then delivered again and again David. And that's what we've been looking at the past few lessons. We could add many other records in the Bible as testimonies to the truth of 1 Samuel 2.30. But certainly the Spirit, the Spirit of God, as he speaks to us through his word, has highlighted this truth for us over the last nine lessons. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now, if the Spirit is bringing that to our attention... And certainly that's the lesson that we need to learn, right? And that lesson that we need to learn better. So now coming to the end of our unit, we need to ask, have we learned that lesson? Do we live our lives in such a way that we say, I, I live according to the truth that God declares, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. God doesn't change. The thing that he declared in the scriptures is still true today. Well, as I began to explain, the end of unit lessons are technically review lessons. And when we're meeting in person, the multiple levels of the Answers Baba curriculum that includes the, the younger classes, the, the elementary school grades, etc. There's a lot of review taking place in those classes. But for our class, the adult class, we usually try to explore a topic that we didn't get to in the regular lessons. Sometimes we watch a video and discuss it, or sometimes we investigate something something related to what we talked about. So what we're going to do for today's lesson, rather than watching a video, because that's not really going to work in our format and our circumstances, I'd like us to return to something that we actually didn't get to. It was part of the curriculum for the last lesson, but we didn't get to because we just didn't have time. Because you see, as we were talking about David hiding from Saul, running from Saul, one of the other books of the Bible that sheds more light on David and his circumstances 
outside of 1 Samuel is the book of Psalms. Yes, the Psalms also, if we're just studying the Bible chronologically, they go right along with what we've been seeing lately. Now, we're going to have an official lesson on the Psalms later on in the ABC, in the Answers Bible Curriculum. But I want us to take a small foray today into the Psalms to find out more what David was thinking and feeling as he was living what was his righteous life on the run. How do the historical accounts in 1 Samuel inform what we read in the Psalms? What does David intend to teach Israel and by extension us in the Psalms? What's the messages or what are the messages of the Psalms? And how is the example itself of singing in the midst of trials instructive to us today? That's what we want to find out in today's lesson. But let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time of study. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we look to you for food, not just physical food and all the regular things that we need to sustain our lives, but we look for spiritual food. Feed us from your word. Help me, Lord, to be able to explain your word accurately, helpfully, powerfully. And God, I pray that your spirit would work in those who are listening today so that they would be transformed, encouraged, convicted, all those things, God. Bless your people today. Work among them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at two psalms today that are tied to the section of 1 Samuel that we covered last time. The first psalm that I'd like us to look at together is Psalm 34. So please take your Bibles and go to Psalm 34. The book of Psalms is uh, one of the bigger books of the Old Testament. Psalm 34 as I said, we'll talk more about the Psalms later on, but just for now, I'll give you a few pieces of information about this book of the Bible. Psalms are a collection of prayer songs or prayer poems. They're written in worship to God. They are meant also for communal worship, public worship. These are things that would be sung or recited together. This collection of Psalms or songs, it was put together over several centuries. The earliest contributor to the book of Psalms is actually Moses. But the latest contributors, they would be some of the Israelites who were coming back after the exile of Israel into Babylon, exile of Judah. So this book covers a lot of different authors and a large period of time. We do get background about the circumstances of the Psalms in which they were written a little bit by paying attention to the details that are within the Psalms. But another way we get background is by paying attention to the psalm's title, if it has one. For example, take a look at the title at the beginning of Psalm 34. Now, when I say title, don't get that confused with the heading that might appear in your Bible translation. Uh, for example, you might have a thematic heading listed at the very top of Psalm 34, right underneath the word Psalm 34. For example, the New American Standard, it has a heading that says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, a provider and deliverer. It's written in italics in the New American Standard. Now this heading, it's a, a summary of what this psalm is about. And you see many such headings in the New American Standard for the different psalms or for just the different sections of the Bible. The thing to know about these headings is that while they're helpful, they're not original. They're not inspired. They're not the Bible itself. They're, they're just uh, the translator or the publisher trying to help you summarize what's in a certain section. When I say pay attention to the title, I'm not really referring to those headings, which can be helpful, but again, they're not inspired. 
What I am referring to are the other words that appear underneath that heading, uh, if you have a heading in, in your Bible. Uh, you won't see these words in the King James Version, but they are there in the original Hebrew. For example, Psalm 34, it reads, the title reads, A Psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. Now, as I say, we might be inclined to think, oh, you know, this is just extra information supplied by the translator or the publisher. It's not really the word of God. But I don't think we should take that view, because if you go to the Hebrew Bible, the copies of the, of the original manuscripts which we have today, verse 1 does not actually begin with what verse 1 looks like in our Bible, where it says, I will bless Yahweh at all times. Verse 1 actually begins with the title, with a Psalm of David. And that's consistent with all the Psalms that have titles. So this, as far as we can tell, this was not something added later by somebody who was not inspired by the Spirit. This was and is the Word of God Himself. So moral of the story, pay attention to the titles. Not only can they give background information, but they are, they are the Word of God also. So look again at the title information for Psalm 34, and let's see what information we can discern. First notice that the title says, of David, that is, by David. David is the author. We're also told when David wrote this psalm. It says, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now this reference to a historical event is part of the section that we covered last time, but not one that we looked at particularly. So I'd like us to go back to the instance where this event appears, we see this actually in 1 Samuel 21. So if you'll keep your finger in Psalm 34 and go to 1 Samuel 21, we'll see what this psalm is referring to. So 1 Samuel 21, towards the end of that chapter. So starting in verse 10, we're not going to analyze this passage. We're just going to read it but know that David has just left the priest Ahimelech, who's given David provision and a sword, and he goes to flee to one of the great cities of the Philistines. There are five great cities of the Philistines. Philistines are enemies of Israel, but David decides to go to Gath, to the king there. Notice what it says in 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10, and we'll read to the first verse of the next chapter. It says, 1 Samuel 21, 10. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? David took these words to heart, and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them, and acted insanely in their hands, and scribbled on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act a madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. All right, that's important background information, but let's go back to Psalm 34 now. And let's read the rest of Psalm 34 after the title. I get there in my Bibles too. My Bible too. Psalm 34. 
The word of God says, I will bless the Lord that is Yahweh at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in Yahweh. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify Yahweh with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought Yahweh and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of Yahweh encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear Yahweh, you, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek Yahweh should not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of Yahweh is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Yahweh redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's start our study of this psalm with basic observations of the text. Notice that we're looking at Hebrew poetry here. And what's the most fundamental aspect of Hebrew poetry? Not rhyme, like it is in English poetry frequently, but parallelism. You see, here in this psalm, as in much of Hebrew poetry, you have a lot of lines that express nearly the same idea as the line before or after, just in a slightly different way. This is... Hebrew parallelism. Think of Hebrew poetry as highlighting a rhyming of ideas rather than of sounds. This is what they considered very beautiful stylistically. And there is beauty to it. Of course, Hebrew poetry does interact with sounds too. They, they would be rather clever and, and beautiful with the way they use sound, but not quite like the way that we do in, in our English poetry. So recognize we've got a lot of parallelism here. But having heard the whole psalm, having read the whole psalm, how would we describe the attitude or the tone of the speaker? Is David lamenting, pleading, confessing, celebrating? Or certainly the tone or the attitude of the speaker is triumphant. It is celebratory. It is uh, laudatory. That is filled with praise. This is not a psalm full of confession of sin or lack of faith. In fact, there's no reference to those things in the psalm. And nor is David distressed or still looking for deliverance. Those things have passed. David, the speaker, is delivered at this point, and he is full of gladness. And we can see it in just the way he, he writes, the way he speaks. 
Now, when examining Hebrew poetry, like the Psalms, it is good to notice where groups of the same idea appear. It, perhaps this is not separated at all into sections in your Bible, and it can kind of seem like it's just a hodgepodge of words and ideas, but that's not the case. There is an organization to the ideas here, and so we want to see if we can observe how the ideas are grouped together by just saying, well, where are the lines all having the same idea? So let's see if we can do that for this psalm. Notice verses 1 to 2. What is the main idea or the same idea that appears in these two verses? Was it not David praising God? David is basically saying these verses, I really want to praise God. He says, I will bless Yahweh at all times. But notice the phrase that this praise does not stay private because at the end of verse 2, David says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. I've got individual praise, but it's going to involve others. In fact, if you go to verse 3, David even invites others to join in the praise. He says, magnify the Lord with me, magnify Yahweh with me. So we have an expression of an individual desire to praise God, followed by an invitation for others to join in. Now notice verse, verses 4 to 7. Is there a one main idea expressed here also? Notice the reports that David gives in verses 4 and 6. He says, I sought Yahweh and he answered me. God delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried, me. And Yahweh heard and saved out of all my troubles. David's giving these reports. But now notice verses, verses 5 and 7. So we just looked at 4 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 7. Is the idea similar or different or both? We see again, there is testimony of the people who look to God and God delivers them. But notice that verses 5 and 7 are talking about people in general, not just David. So how can we capture the main idea, verses 4 to 7? Is it not testimony of God's deliverance? David says, I sought God and he delivered me, and others have experienced the same. We're giving testimony that God is the deliverer. He's delivered us. And now notice verses 8 to 10. Because what does David do here? He again invites others to join in. Invites others to find protection and provision and deliverance in God. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Or as he says, uh, fear him as saints because then you won't lack. So do you notice how verses 1 to 3 have a parallel in verses 4 to 7? In, verses, or in, in these two sections, we have what starts as an individual action, which goes communal, and then even includes an invitation for others to join in. In verses 1 to 3, David says, I want to praise. I want others to hear. And hey, listener, won't you join in also? In the verses 4 to 7, David says, I want to testify my experience with God. Others can testify of it too. And hey, listener, won't you come also and experience God's goodness and deliverance? Now notice in verse 11, there's a shift. David moves from praising and testifying to teaching. He says, come, you children, I will teach you. And what is it that David wishes to teach? He says it is the fear of Yahweh. That is the life of proper reverence and enjoyment of the true God. Now, it's not stated explicitly here, but 
From what source do people learn the proper way to live before God? Is it just David? David's the one with that knowledge? Well, no, it actually goes back to the scripture itself, right? It goes back to the Torah and the, the rest of the Old Testament. And really, we can include the New Testament too. You learn the fear of Yahweh from the revelation of Yahweh. The life of proper reverence, the life of enjoyment and obedience to God that comes from his word. Which is why I think we see what we do in Psalm 19.9. That's one of the psalms that talks about the scripture itself. It calls it a number of phrases. And one of the phrases it uses as a synonym for the scriptures is the fear of Yahweh. It's because they're so tightly related. So David says he wants to teach the fear of Yahweh. And for whom is this teaching? Notice verse 12. This teaching is for any person who desires life, days, and good. Which persons are those? Well, that's everybody, isn't it? Is there any person who doesn't want life, doesn't want days, doesn't want to experience good? If anybody's thinking in his right mind, he desires those things. So David says, hey, people, all of you people looking for these things. That's all of you, I know. I'll tell you how to get it. And what's the way? David says in verses 13 and 14, turn from evil and instead seek and do good. That's the way. You want these things? Turn from evil, instead seek and do good. In other words, fear Yahweh. Going back to what he said in verse 12. This is what a life that actually epitomizes, that truly has the fear of Yahweh, it manifests in this way. Turn from evil, seek good. Theological term in the Bible used to describe this is what? Turning from evil to do good? That's repentance. What the Bible calls repentance. It says you want to be blessed, you got to repent and come follow after Yahweh. Verses 15 to 22 then set up a series of contrasts. But notice between whom the contrast is, the contrasts are. We have on the one hand the righteous, those who fear God, and on the other hand the wicked, those who do not fear God. What is God's demeanor toward the righteous? Well, verse 15 says he's attentive to them. He's listening to them. How amazing it would it is to have God listening and attentive to you. But what is God's attitude toward the unrighteous? Verse 16 says he is against them to destroy them. Not only is he not listening, but he's actively working to destroy. Whoa. What else does God do for the righteous? As we keep going through the section, it says even though the righteous go through many troubles... They're not free from trouble. God delivers them. And even better, God promises that he will never condemn the righteous, those who fear him. Now again, what about the unrighteous? As we keep moving through the section, what does God do for the unrighteous? Well, there's no promise of deliverance. He will not deliver them. Instead, God says they will be slain by evil or they'll be slain by trouble. And worse, they will be condemned. God says they will be condemned. So we can characterize the flow of ideas in this psalm, like I said, in three main sections. And you now see them on the screen. Verses 1 to 3, we have praise and an invitation to join. Verses 4 to 10, four to 10 testimony and an invitation to join. And then verses 11 to 22, teaching and an exhortation to fear and obey God. We could, of course, observe more in this section, but 
Those are some good observations. Let's now go to the second step of Bible study and ask questions of interpretation based on what we've observed and what we've read about this psalm and its background. 1 Samuel 21 identifies the king from whom David fled as Achish, but the title here in Psalm 34 refers to this king as Abimelech. Uh, that's different. Is this an error in the Bible? Well, hopefully you've been with us enough by now to know that the scripture can be believed above all. In its original manuscripts, it is God-breathed. It cannot be broken, Jesus says. In 2 Timothy 3.16, that is, is God-breathed. In John 10.35, scripture cannot be broken. So it isn't really something wrong with the scripture. There must be a, an explanation for this name discrepancy, Achish Abimelech. What's the solution? I think the simplest solution is that King Achish also was named Abimelech. There's no reason this couldn't be. In fact, Abimelech is a name that appears often in the Old Testament for kings and wannabe kings in Canaan. Abimelech actually means uh, something like, my father is king or father of a king. Melech is the Hebrew word for king, and Avi would be my father. So it would make sense as kind of like a, a royal name or royal title. Many do believe, and I think this is quite plausible, that Abimelech is kind of like the name Pharaoh in Egypt. It's just what the king would take on as his name or title. So, it seems that this king in Gath, he was called both Achish and Abimelech, and that's why we see the two names. Now, here's another question. I don't know if this occurred to you, but did David sin or demonstrate lack of faith by pretending to be insane? Now, there are good Bible-believing commentators who say the answer is yes, David did sin, he was showing lack of faith. But I disagree. I don't think he was. And I'll lay out a little argument. First, and hopefully you notice this, there is no contrition in this commemorative psalm about David's deliverance from Achish. There's no confession of lying or lack of faith. It's all celebration. Actually, David, in praising God, he connects his insanity ruse with God's deliverance. David says, thank you, God, for delivering me. You did it. But then, if we just go back to 1 Samuel 21, we see that it was David's pretended insanity that was his means of deliverance. So for David to say what he does in Psalm 34, David must be implying that God delivered David through David's own actions, through his pretending to be insane. How could David make such an attribution if what David did was actually sinful and faithless? So I think it's one reason we, would, we should not condemn David for what he did. I think a second reason is that, as we've seen in other lessons, withholding information or allowing someone to believe what is not true is not necessarily considered lying or sin, according to the Bible. Go back in your mind to what we saw about Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. God told Samuel to go to Bethlehem, and he was to say that he was offering sacrifice there at Bethlehem. Even though God also said, the main reason you're going is to anoint a new king instead of Saul. He says, that's your primary reason for going, but if anybody asks you why you're going, say that you're going to offer sacrifice. Now that was true. Samuel was going to offer sacrifice, but that wasn't the main reason he was going. Samuel didn't have to give full information of his actions, and because of that, others, 
especially King Saul, probably would conclude something that was actually not true of Samuel. Namely, that Samuel was going to Bethlehem and was not going to do anything to undermine Saul's rule. Based on how Samuel was acting, based on what Samuel said, he would have come to that conclusion, but that was not true. Samuel actually was anointing a king to replace Saul. Yet Samuel obviously did not do wrong in this because he was commanded by God to do it. And God certainly can't do wrong. God testifies elsewhere in the scripture that he does not tempt anyone to sin, nor can he lie. So we have the example of the scriptures that not giving full information or allowing someone to believe something that is not true is not necessarily sin. Now, if you are withholding information that results in someone's harm, well, there I think you can argue that that is sin. But in general, not saying everything that is true about yourself or not giving full information, that's not considered, it's not considered sin. And now a third reason why I don't think we should condemn David is that don't we all pretend in innocuous ways in our lives? I mean, this is something that we do probably every day. I mean, here's an example. Maybe you decide you're going to go to a fancy restaurant. You never go to a fancy restaurant, but you go to one that's like super pricey that you want to make it special for, for maybe your wife or something like that. But when you go there, you try not to look like someone who doesn't go to fancy restaurants very much. Why? Well, because you don't want to stand out. You don't want people to look down on you or treat you with poor service because they know, oh, this guy, like, he's, he's a total pretender. He, he's not rich. He's not going to come back here. You, you try not to stand out. Or maybe you travel to another country, and that country is known for its hostility toward Americans. So what do you do? You try not to make it obvious that you are, in fact, an American. Now, why? Well, it's not because you're ashamed of yourself or ashamed of your country, necessarily, but it's because you recognize that it's prudent to blend in and not suffer unnecessary hostility. If people think you're European or think people think that you're just a native of the place, well, great, that'll avoid you some trouble. Now, people, based on how you're acting in these instances and things like them, they may come to the wrong conclusion about you or about what you're doing. Yet again, you're not obligated to clarify those misconceptions. Now, though, if someone asks you straight out at the restaurant whether you're rich, I don't know why they would do that, or if someone asks you straight out in another country whether you are an American, no matter how you've been acting, as a Christian, how should you respond? Well, you can refuse to answer. You can dodge the question with a creative answer. Answer a question with a question, for instance. Or you can tell the truth. One thing you cannot do is lie. And why? Because, as 1 John says, no lie is of the truth. To lie is to be fundamentally unlike God. And everything that is good is in God. If God cannot lie, then lying can never be good. And we've talked about that in previous lessons, so if you want to know more about that, I can point you to that after the lesson. Now, if we recognize that we pretend in these various everyday situations, what about in war? If it's innocuous, if it's okay, if it's not uh, condemnation-worthy in everyday life, then what about in war when you are in enemy territory, as David was? 
certainly we can understand the prudence of pretending and not giving full information. So for these reasons, I don't believe that David does wrong in pretending to be insane before Achish. I don't think it's a sign of lack of faith. David, as far as we're told, he does not speak any lies, but he does act in a way to convince the Philistines that though he's a great commander and warrior of Israel, he poses them no threat. I think this interpretation is consistent with the information and the tone that we see in Psalm 34. Now let's ask another question. Does this very celebratory psalm, does it promise continual prosperity for those who follow after God? Hopefully you saw, just by paying close attention to the text, and the answer is absolutely not. Because even though this song is very triumphant, it only comes after what? A time of great danger and pain. It wasn't super great for David when he was there in Philistia with his life in danger. That happened to someone who was righteous. And even David testifies directly in the psalm, many are the troubles of the righteous. Many are the afflictions. It's just a fact, people, David says. So, our brothers and sisters, you've got to realize this for yourself. If you are a Christian, you are going to go through many troubles. You know, so easily we are tempted not to believe that that's true. Difficulty comes upon us and we're like, what's going on? Like, this doesn't seem right. I'm trying to follow God and I got all these terrible things happening to me. Something's up. Something's wrong. Well, actually, the scriptures told you ahead of time that that would be the case. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But what's your comfort? What was David's comfort? It's what's listed in the psalm. But the Lord, Yahweh, delivers the righteous from them all. No matter how many troubles you go through, no matter how difficult or how long those trials are, God will deliver you. The Lord delivers you from all trials in the perfect way, in the perfect time. That's a promise from God. No amount of faith or righteousness is going to make your life trouble-free. It will come, but God will deliver you through it and from it. So with that clarification, what is the main message of this song? What's the fundamental idea? Well, considering its structure and its emphasis on the goodness of God, I'd summarize it in this way. To experience God's great blessing and deliverance, join the righteous in following after God. This psalm is so much an invitation, isn't it? Celebration and invitation. You can, you can almost... I think you can. You can feel David's great passion for God in this psalm. His longing for others to know the goodness and the greatness of God in their own lives. And don't we feel some of that today? We certainly should. We look at our unsaved family and friends, or we look at the leaders of our country or other countries, or we just consider our country and society in general. Our hearts should say, if only you knew the goodness of God. If only you knew Yahweh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be wasting your time in all these efforts. You wouldn't be so downcast. They wouldn't be pursuing all these self-destructive sins. If only you knew. Isn't that what our hearts say? And you know what? God feels the same way about himself. And how do we know that? Because God is the one who ultimately wrote this psalm. Yes, David wrote it, but God wrote it through David. So in essence, God is saying through this psalm, everyone who hears, listen now. Listen to how I have delivered one of my faithful ones. I delivered David when he was in trouble. 
I've done this again and again for my people. So won't you come also and enjoy my bounty? Won't you enjoy my goodness? Won't you join in in praise of me? Why will you continue to live in fear? Why will you continue to seek your own way instead of my way? Why will you continue to trust in your own strength or your own righteousness instead of mine? Consider the great difference of those who fear me and those who don't. Both have troubles, but those who fear me, they are delivered unto life and blessing, even for eternity. But for the others, for those who do not fear me, who insist on being the king of their own lives, what do they experience? They are destroyed, and they are eternally condemned. So, won't you embrace the fear of Yahweh? Won't you come and follow after me, God says. My friends, we need to listen to the Spirit of God as it speaks to us through this psalm. If you don't yet know God through Jesus Christ, well, heed the exhortation. Stop foolishly pursuing your own way, a way that is vain. It will not ultimately produce what you're looking for, and worse, it will receive the condemnation of God because you remain a rebel Someone who's usurped the throne of his own life when really that throne belongs to God. You're his creation. He's been good to you. You ought to follow after him. Therefore, repent, as this psalm exhorts. Repent and believe in the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you do know the Lord, but you've become caught up in some stubborn sin or ongoing fear and anxiety, well, then also hear the exhortation of the Spirit in this psalm. God speaks to you. Won't you find your comfort in God? Won't you repent of your sin, your fear, your unbelief, and rest in the Lord, the Deliverer? Won't you even rejoice again in the God who delivers all who look to Him at the right time and in the right way, just as He did for David Come join the righteous. They're experiencing the blessing. They're experiencing the deliverance. You could too, if you'll just give up your stubborn way. Now, we don't just want to pay attention to the message and the words of this psalm, but let's consider it as an example in connection with Psalm or with 1 Samuel 21. How do these two chapters taken together provide a, an instructive pattern for our lives? In light of 1 Samuel 21, does Psalm 34 not show us that when we, when we experience the deliverance of God, that we ought to praise Him, praise Him privately and publicly, because that's what David does. God delivers David in 1 Samuel 21, and then we hear about it in Psalm 34. That's an instructive example for us. Think about the deliverance you know in salvation but also the victory and deliverance you experience in sanctification and becoming more like Jesus and becoming more holy. Or the deliverance that you experience from oppression and dangerous trials. What should you do in light of those deliverances? Is it not publicly praise the Lord? Testify before the church and even before the world and say, look at how great God is. Look at how good He is. Is that characteristic of your life? Do you just love to give public praise to God for His deliverance and all facets of your life? 
And we also learn another lesson. We should be careful to remember to write down even the amazing works of deliverance of God that we experience in our lives. I mean, David wrote a, a praise, a work of praise based on the deliverance he experienced. And that song became one of the great songs of Israel, a song that has been included for us as inspired scripture even. Shouldn't we also then be commemorating the deliverances of God that we see in our lives? Because all too often, what happens? We experience some deliverance from God, we thank Him for it, but then we forget about it. We forget about it, and then we experience some other trial, and we despair of ever being delivered from it. We totally forget what God did for us in the past. We don't remember God's greatness, but what will help us remember? A purposeful effort of commemorating it, even a song. And that's part of the reason why we sing Christian songs today, isn't it? Because we want to commemorate the deliverance the deliverances that we have in God. We need reminders of how great a God we have. And music is one of the ways that God has provided us to remind ourselves so we'll be encouraged when we encounter the next trial. Now Psalm 34 is a prayer song from someone who has already experienced deliverance. But what about a person who is still in danger and has not yet experienced deliverance? Let's go look at another psalm. Take your Bibles and go to Psalm 54. We've been in Psalm 34, but now let's go to Psalm 54. This is a shorter psalm. Notice the title information of the psalm with me. It says, For the choir director, on stringed instruments, a maskeel of David, when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, Is not David hiding himself among us? Now, that's interesting. Interesting title information here. The statement that it's for the choir director, it, it tells us this is for the worship leader of the singers at the tabernacle. So this song was to be part of the regular public worship in Israel. It says on stringed instruments, meaning instrumental accompaniment is, uh, is part of the design for this song. It's called a mesquil. We don't know what that term means. It appears to be some technical musical term. Perhaps it means something like skillful song or teaching song or wisdom song or memory song. We hear it's also written by David. This is another psalm of David. And we get the occasion. When the Ziphites told Saul about where David was. Now 1 Samuel tells us that this happened twice. It may have happened more, but we know it at least happened twice. The first is in 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23, verses 19 to 29. We won't take the time to go back and read that now. But the Ziphites tell about David's location. Saul comes down. He surrounds David's position, nearly captures him. But then a messenger comes to Saul at the last moment saying, Hey, Philistines have attacked. And Saul withdraws. The other instance is in 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 to 25. And that's one we looked at together. Saul comes out camps in the wilderness with his men all around him. But David infiltrates the camp, takes Saul's spear and a water jug, and he shows Saul the next day. He says, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And Saul leaves. One of those instances is in the background. One of those instances most likely is in the background of this psalm. So let's see, let's see what the psalm actually says as we continue with it, starting in verse 1. David says, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your power. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. 
Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense thee, evil to my foes. Destroy them in your faithfulness. Willingly, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Let's make some observations on this song. If we look to discern the organization of this psalm as well by looking for similar ideas within the lines, we can break down this psalm into three main sections. Now, it's not always three sections. I know three seems like the magic number for preachers, but I think that's the number that's appropriate for this psalm. If you just look at verses 1 to 2, we can see the main idea is David calling on God for help and salvation. He says, save me, O God, verse 1. So automatically, we're seeing that the situation and even the tone of this psalm is very different than the one we just looked at. This is not a delivered David triumphing. This is a David in danger calling for help. We see, beginning in verse 3, that David begins to describe his situation. And it's a, it's a very dangerous one. He says, strangers and violent men who do not know God, they're seeking to kill me. Now that's interesting, because according to 1 Samuel 23 and 26, which men are specific, specifically seeking to kill David? Well, it's Saul. It's Saul's servants. And it's the, even the Ziphites. David calls them in this psalm, strangers, violent men, those who do not know God. These are dangerous men, powerful men, and wicked men, and they put David in their sights. Now notice the word Selah in verse 3. This is another technical musical term which has a meaning that is unclear to us today. Certainly would have been clear when it was originally written, but we just can't figure it out quite yet. It may mean increased pitch, it may mean increased volume, it may mean pause, it may mean musical interlude. We're not entirely sure, but it is a musical, it is a musical term for how to sing or to, to do this song. But verse 3 is not the only part of the account of David's situation. He does have these violent, these evil men coming after him, but what else does David have? He says, God is my helper and the sustainer of my soul. Yes, I see these wicked men coming for me on the one hand. I need your help, God, but I know you are my helper. In fact, notice what David expects God will do. Going, going on in verses 4 and 5. He says, He will recompense the evil to my foes. He will pay them back for the evil that they do and that they seek to do. And isn't that what David himself said to Saul back in 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26? He says, May Yahweh avenge me on you, but I will not lift my hand against you, for you are Yahweh's anointed. He says, I know Yahweh will do it though. Now the end of verse 5 is powerful. It may be a little bit shocking. What does David call on God to do? Destroy these wicked men in your faithfulness. Huh. So verses 1 to 2 are David's call for help. Verses 3 to 5, they give David's situation before men and before God. And now look at verses 6 and 7. What's the main idea of these verses? I think we can characterize it as it's an expectation of praise and deliverance. David says in verse 6 that he anticipates praising God and giving thanks to God based on God's unveiled goodness. 
And David talks in verse 7 about deliverance and satisfaction based on what God does to David's enemies. Notice the verb tenses, though, in verses 6 and 7. David says in verse 6 that he's talking about future actions. I will give you praise. I will give thanks. But in verse 7, it's a past idea, or technically what we call present perfect, grammatically. Deliverance has already been accomplished. He has delivered. My eye has looked with satisfaction. Now, wait a second. Wasn't David just pleading for deliverance in verse 1? Why are we suddenly shifting with the idea that deliverance has already come? Well, let's take that question into the interpretation step. We've made some observations. Let's talk about interpretation again. Why this past idea in verse 7? Why does it sound like deliverance has already come? One answer would be that deliverance came while David was praying and singing. Uh, David speaks about deliverance having already come because it literally has, while he was praising. That's possible, but I think that's unlikely. Because the rest of the psalm is anticipatory. Even verse 6 is quite plainly future. He says, I will give you praise when you do this. If the deliverance already had come, then surely he would say, I now give you praise, or uh, let me just go right into praise. I think the idea is that, no, it is still future, despite what verse 7 says. So, why this past idea in verse 7? I think the more, the, the answer is that verse 7 is an example of a special mode of speaking that we sometimes see in the Old Testament and even the New Testament. And that is where someone talks about the future as if it were past because of how certain that future is. For example, we see the same thing in Isaiah 53. You may be familiar with that section of Isaiah. It describes the suffering serpent. It is a prophecy of the amazing work of Jesus Christ in his uh, sacrificial death on the cross. And yet it's described as in the past tense, like the servant has already lived, died, and suffered. Well, clearly that hasn't happened yet. He hasn't obtained redemption for his people, at least by the time Isaiah was writing. But it was already a certainty, even at that time. So it is with David in verse 7. He has not yet experienced deliverance, but he anticipates it so strongly that he considers it a done deal. God will deliver me. I know it. It's like it's already done. He will justly judge my enemies I know this for certain. In a sense, it is already done, right? Because God has decreed everything since before the foundation of the world. He has an eternal decree which has already established how he will and when he will deliver his people. So in a sense, it is already done. Another question that may have occurred to you as we went through this psalm, is David right to pray for the destruction of his foes? Clearly, David was not wrong to pray this because this psalm was ultimately written by the Spirit of God. And David wrote this psalm even for the choir director. This is a song that David thought was exemplary enough to be used by Israel in public worship, even with this line about destroy them in your faithfulness. But how to square this with Jesus' teaching about loving enemies and praying for their good, like in Matthew 5.44? We could get into a pretty prolonged discussion about this issue, but I think the answer is actually simple, and that is that both things are true at the same time. We do love our enemies, pray for their good, at the same time as we pray for God's justice, and we pray for 
God's vengeance on enemies. For example, just to illustrate what this would look like, it is right for us Christians to pray, God, don't let the wicked get away with what they do. Lord, avenge the blood of your believers who have been slain by Boko Haram in Nigeria. Father, bring justice for all those who have been trapped and ensnared and ruined by America's pornographic industry. It's right to pray those things. But we should be praying even at the same time. Yet God, have mercy upon those murderers. Bring great conviction to them for their sin so that it might turn to you and find life. God, for those who ensnare others into a sexual sin, cause them to repent, cause them to cry out to you before it's too late. Deliver them from themselves and from their own sin. I don't think these things are inconsistent to pray together. Because as Christians, don't we desire both justice and mercy? And why? Because these are both the things that God is. God is fundamentally a God of justice, but he's also fundamentally a God of love and mercy. So it makes sense that we would desire both in our lives, even for our enemies. And that's why I think we see in the scriptures that both prayers, both types of prayers are expressed. It's not really a choice between one and the other. It's actually both. And we should be praying both in our lives. I don't think we should make exception for David. He's actually being quite exemplary here and asking for the Lord's vengeance on those who do evil. What is the main message of this psalm? Again, considering its organization, its flow of ideas, let me give you my take, my summary of this. I would say this psalm is a brief map on how to respond to trials in order to see God's blessing. Three basic steps. Verses 1 to 2, turn to God. Verses 3 to 5, see your situation properly. Yes, you've got terrible foes in danger, but you've got God as your helper. And then verses 6 to 7, expect God's deliverance. Anticipate it like it's already done. What's amazing about this psalm is that it shows us that you don't actually have to experience deliverance to be totally confident and joyful that you will be delivered. This is what made David's heart steadfast in the midst of storm, and really it's what makes our heart steadfast when we encounter trials. How are you going to have joy when you don't see any deliverance and you're in a very dangerous and difficult situation in your life? It's the same way that David did. By turning to God, seeing your situation properly, and expecting God's deliverance. So, will you heed the voice of God as it speaks to you from this psalm? I mean, are you facing trouble? Do you not see deliverance? I know we probably are. All of us are in one way or another. Our society certainly is. We can become very fearful about this. But we need to heed David's word. It's, these same things are true for us. Turn to God, see your situation properly, expect God's deliverance. And we know what was the outcome for David, don't we? It's not mentioned here in this psalm, but it is in 1 Samuel 23 and 1 Samuel 26. God did not fail David, and he will not fail us. He will not fail you. Trust him. Stop being fearful. Stop pridefully looking to yourself instead of God. Rest in him. Expect deliverance from him even when you don't see how it's going to happen with your eyes. You know, so often we pray to God 
not expecting that he actually will answer our prayers. Oh God, please help. This is hard. God, what will you? I, I don't know. And we plead with him, but we don't expect that he actually will do what we, we ask for. You know what James says about that in the New Testament. He says, anybody who prays to God like that shouldn't expect any deliverance because he's a double-minded man. That kind of prayer doesn't honor God. But if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, if you say, God, you said you'd do it. I'll trust that you will. See and help me now. Believe that. Not only will God answer that prayer, but you'll have the peace and joy of God until he does. That's what God meant us for. There is something else exemplary about this psalm. Again, if we connect it with the, the narrative passage, not only do we learn from this psalm that we should pray to God confidently during trouble, but that we should even sing to God, sing to God in the midst of trouble. That may seem counterintuitive, but it's not. You know, as you go through the Bible, not every godly song is celebratory and triumphant like Psalm 34 is. You have a lot of songs in the Bible, even in the Psalms, that are full of sorrow, pain, even righteous complaint to Yahweh. But you know what all the godly songs in the Bible have in common? It's faith. Faith in Yahweh to listen to the cries of his people, to bring comfort to the pain, to establish justice and vindication for his people. Not all these songs are happy, but they are all full of faith. These things that these even sad songs in the Bible remind the people of God of, they're the things that we need to be reminded of today, too, when we go through trials. And what better way to remind ourselves than through a song? Now, I find it really interesting that when you go to the book of Acts, chapter 16, you have this instance where Paul and Silas are enduring terrible persecution for God's sake. <clears throat> They've sought to be instruments of the Lord in Philippi, witnesses, evangelists, but they are then falsely accused, beaten incessantly with rods, thrown in prison, and have their feet fastened into stocks. It's a terrible turn of events, and Paul and Silas have done nothing wrong. They've been following the Lord. But what do we see them doing soon after? After they've endured all this pain, they're still in the midst of their trial, what are they doing in the middle of the night? Acts 16.25 But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. There's a pattern for us there. Isn't there? I know, brothers and sisters, sometimes the sorrow and trouble of life is so severe that you can't even find the voice to sing. Yet David and Paul and Silas, they show us that singing and praying and remembering songs of faith in the midst of trial, they are ways that we comfort ourselves in the Lord and become buoyed in his faithfulness. I mean, just speaking experientially, I can think of different times in my life where I felt spiritually low or just very tempted towards anxiety or sin. But then I'm, I'm greatly comforted by remembering and even singing Christian songs. And again, the songs doesn't have to be happy. It doesn't have to be happy day. You know, one of my favorite songs that's super happy, it can be a, a song full of sorrow. But if it's 
if it speaks the truth of Scripture and it reminds you who God is, then the, the faithfulness of the Lord, it just gets into your heart in a way that mere, mere words sometimes aren't able to do. I think that's one of the ways, one of the reasons God gave us music to help. It's kind of like a, putting some sort of coding on the truth so that it actually is able to, to, to pierce, pierce the, uh, the, the hardness of our hearts that we face in a difficult situation. We remember that song, we hear that music, or we even sing it ourselves, and we say, Oh, that is true. God is faithful. I think that's another thing we need to learn from these songs. Even Psalm 54. We should sing to God in the midst of trial. Again, it doesn't have to be with your words. I think it's really helpful if you do, out loud. But even in our hearts, remember the truth about God in the midst of trial. Even this song, even Psalm 54, because that will bring comfort to you in the faithfulness of God. Well, as you see, we've been talking about application, really, as we've been going through the interpretation step. But uh, as we close our study today, let me just summarize some of the applications we've seen. I, I won't expand these now since we're pretty much out of time, but this is what we've seen today. Psalm 34, turn from your evil way, your vain way. You won't be able to deliver yourself in the end. Turn to God. Join God's people in experiencing His goodness. He invites you. He wants you to. He's a loving God. Praise God publicly for His great works. Commemorate God's deliverances in your life, even through song. Turn to God in trouble. Be confident in God's coming, de coming deliverance. And sing God's truth during your trials. See some comments there on the side. I'll, I will... Um, I'll read those and interact with those in just a moment. But that's it for this week. Uh, we're actually going on break for summer Sunday school. There, there won't be, we won't be taking a, another lesson next week. We'll be doing a break until the fall. But thank you so much for being part of the Sunday school study today and, and maybe even the past few weeks. When we resume in the fall, we'll continue studying the life of David as well as the life of Solomon and even see how the kingdom of Israel splits into two under Solomon and why that happened, and what God was doing. Hope you'll be back for that. If you have a question or a comment that you've not yet expressed in the YouTube chat, please do so. I'd love to interact with it afterwards. And again, thank you for your participation in our study today. Let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two songs. Songs that commemorate your wonderful deliverance, but also songs of those who are looking for your deliverance and hadn't yet seen it. Because we go through both of those things. And Lord, we are to be instructed, not just by the messages of the Psalms, but even the examples of the psalm writer himself. Oh God, you are a comfort in the midst of trial. And even if we don't see your deliverance, we know it will come. Lord, help us, help us not to fear, not to be anxious, not to trust in ourselves rather than you, but to say, my God has never failed his people and he won't start with me. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are a deliverer. There is no hope except in you. Thank you for making yourself known to us and for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for your um, joining us today. Again, if you have a comment or a question, please post in the chat. I'll see you in the live stream uh, service on YouTube. And uh, otherwise, I'll see you again soon. Yeah, Juan and Amy, you mentioned that tension
Yeah, I think it's it's not an either or, but it's really both that it is we desire justice, but we also desire mercy at the same time. Right. Uh, Liz, you mentioned that verse from Hebrews just describing what faith is. It is the the reality of what we hope for, the evidence of things we cannot see. It is not a substanceless thing. It is not I hi- it is not as many people have said, and I hope so faith. It is an I know so faith. I know God will do it. I'm just waiting for it to come to pass. You're most welcome. Those of you expressing your thanks. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I understand why we need to take a break during the summer, but of course I'm also kind of feeling like, oh, we're going to miss doing the class and miss interacting and, and going through the word with you because this is the word of life, isn't it? Every truth that we get to uncover together is so beautiful because our God is. This is our God on display. So you're very welcome and thank you. Yeah, so (laughs) anticipate that next time we resume Sunday School, it will be in person. Of course, we'll still stream it online, but it'll be in person. And hopefully Emma and I can be, um, be at Calvary very soon, even in the live service. We hope that we can do that next Sunday. You can pray that God will make that happen. And that will be great to enjoy fellowship with you. Socially distanced fellowship, but fellowship in person. Any other questions or comments on today's lesson? Well, if you think of anything else that you'd like to share, Oh, I see there's a comment uh, from Mark. Well, definitely pray that 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 time of preaching in Virginia is powerful by the Lord's Spirit and that you'll be blessed as you tune into that. Of course, yes, we do pray for Pastor Joe and for the service today, that that will be honoring to the Lord and a powerful um, ministry to God's people. As I was going to say, if you think of anything else that you'd like to share with me, a question or a comment, please feel free to email me at davkaposha at gmail.com. If you're on the Calvary list, you should have been seeing my email address, sending you out different previews of the Sunday School class. But it's just the first three letters of my first name and then my last name at gmail.com. I don't necessarily know the answer to everything, but I can certainly try and give you a good answer if you have a question. And uh, I'd love to just hear your comments as well. Well, that's all for today. I'll sign off, but I'll see you in the main service here at our YouTube page at 11 o'clock. See you there.